0: It's good to see all of you. If you were here last week, um, we preached out of Psalm One, and today we'll be in Psalm Two. There's there's a there's a certain elegance there, of looking at two psalms, uh, two weeks in a row. So if you weren't here last week, that's okay. Don't feel bad. Um, But keep in mind that today we're going to look at Psalm Two, and Psalm One is just like right there in the rearview mirror. So just in case you weren't here last week, we looked at Psalm one, as I mentioned last week, and Psalm one and two are interesting because whoo This is funny. I'm having podium it's like I can it can either sink or be real floppy. <laughs> but that's okay. It's funny. Um, <clears throat> Psalm one it, it has the person in mind. So we talked about how your life, according to Psalm 1, is like a tree. And if you want to live a blessed life, you um, you just kind of pour your roots down into the ways of God, and your life should look like a tree. That's Psalm 1, and blessing comes through that way. Psalm 2 kind of takes the opposite perspective. It Zooms out to the world. Uh, Psalm one is six verses. Psalm two is twelve verses, and it's a little bit takes a little bit longer to kind of um, paint the perspective of the world and what the kingdom of God looks like in relation to the world around us. So, if Psalm one is this very zoomed in, close um, perspective from the person. Psalm 2 is sort of the furthest zoomed outlook that you can take a look at the world and God's kingdom, and together they, they almost act as bookends. The rest of the Psalms live in those boundaries of the person and the world, and I believe that they create this amazing framework for the Christian life. If you could live your life out according to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, I think you would live right in the space where God wants you to be, which is a healthy person and a healthy understanding of the world. That I mean, let's be honest for a second here. Um, we all have our inner struggles. It's it's even hard to understand ourselves. And as you get older, it doesn't necessarily get easier. As we get older, there's these things that um, over time they just they're still there. After all these years. Yeah, I got to say hi to Mark. <laughs> I missed you, my brother, last week. Sorry. I just, first time I laid eyes on you. I, last week I was like, where's Mark? <laughs> you were under the weather last week a little bit, so good to see you. Oh, wow, they're going to, here comes a a third podium. Wow. Let's do this. This is awesome. This Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then Tara's music is there for the end. That's perfect. All right. Well, let's see. Let's see how this one. Oh, yeah. We are good. (laughs) So just to, to reiterate, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are these bookends. And we live in between, okay? And as we zoom out and look at the world and think about God and his kingdom, it doesn't take very long to... Uh, perceive this perception that God has kind of just let the world go in its own direction. But as Christians, as believers in Christ, we believe that Jesus is reigning over the earth; that He is, He knows what's going on. And yet, um, we'll see in this Psalm how true it is today. How it can be said of today that think about your workplaces, the conflicts that we're having in this country, around the world. If you just look at the world, you don't necessarily see a world that seems to be moving toward God. And yet, God is in complete control. I think we're so used to that that we kind of accept it, but it still is, it's, that's a big question. If God is completely in control of this whole thing, why does it appear so wrecked, so disastrous? And really Psalm 2 kind of attacks that question. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, before we read, though, I want to hold a picture in front of you. If you hold up a picture of kittens, you're pretty much good to go. It doesn't matter if your podium is drifting away. Just hold up a picture of kittens. These are two foster kittens that we fostered. Yes, my last name is Foster, and we foster kittens. (laughs) Um, We've been fostering kittens periodically for a few years now, and this is the last set that we had, these two kitten brothers. So I'm, I'm looking at Psalm 2. I'm thinking about the kingdom of God, and I'm looking at these two kittens. And I observed something in them about a kingdom that was really interesting. The one, the tabby one, the orange one, he, he was the, the dominant brother. So he was the one that was kind of controlling their little micro kingdom. And he would control, you know, how much food the, the other guy got. And it was really hysterical. Um, he would try to kind of wrestle them down. And it was just awesome just to watch these guys. But ironically, these two kitten brothers, they exhibit the three essential pieces of what any kingdom involves. And uh, here's just the three pieces of kingdom. I want to hold this in front of us before we go into Psalm 2. Um, Any kingdom has three essential elements. There's a ruler. The ruler is the one that is in charge and has the adequate authority and power to rule. And then there's a realm. Within that realm is where the ruler has his domain or her domain. And this uh, realm includes the subjects and the sphere of influence of this ruler. And then the third essential piece that has to be there is there has to be exercise of this uh, rulership by this ruler. So those are the three. If you look at any king or any kingdom, uh, worldly or even amongst kittens you will see these three um, essential elements coming to life, okay? And just go back to the picture of the kittens there for a second. Ultimately, these guys are just kitten brothers, and yet how interesting that the concept of kingdom is observable in cats. We know, it, we know it's observable in lions, but even, even in kittens you can see it. One just took the role of the ruler The other one said, well, I'm going to be a subject. I'm going to submit to this ruler. And in this realm, which was our family room, they had this little mini kingdom, this micro kingdom alive and well. So let's turn to Psalm 2, and we'll look at this. There's four stanzas. Each stanza has three verses. And we'll just walk through it stanza by stanza with this idea of kingdom in mind. So here's how Psalm 2 begins. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the writer of Psalm 2 is caught by this question. I love when scripture says asks questions. And he says, why are the nations raging? Why are the people plotting in vain? Why is the world falling apart? There's some things in this psalm that, you know, would tie it to sort of the, the, um, the storyline of the Hebrew people of God. So we could place it in the Davidic kingdom or the kingdom of Solomon but the scope of the psalm, we'll see it goes beyond that. You could, as far back as you can go, go to Genesis 1. When, Jesus, uh, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden and he, he stood them up, what did he say to them? He said, um, go subdue the earth, rule over it, reign over it, take care of it, protect it. This is your realm. And now it's time for you, as you've been created in my likeness, to exercise rulership in a good way in this kingdom, the world. We all know it fell apart very quickly in the garden. Um, Adam and Eve uh, had their focus on themselves when they took from the garden something that wasn't theirs yet. And um, the Lord was protecting them from the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they took it into their own hands after being tempted And and their leadership was compromised. And then we see very shortly in the book of Genesis, uh, very quickly as the people make cities and as they gather together, they try to build a tower um, to God to make a name for themselves, not to lift the name of God up, but to lift their own names up. God confuses their language and he um, spreads the people out. And then ever since then, it's just been this one kingdom after another. It wasn't very long ago that our own country was had one of the most horrific civil wars in all of history, in our own country. Our own country. We, we had one of the most brutal civil wars. I mean, we, we didn't experience it firsthand, so it's, it's as if it almost didn't happen. But it did. And so we see just how all through history, and fast forward to today. We see that kingdoms and kings are um, not ruling the best. Let's just say it that way. So then in this first stanza, we also see that the, um, the kings are plotting together horizontally. That word plotting is the same word meditate from Psalm 1. So last week we, taught, we heard the, the blessed one, he meditates on the way of the Lord day and night. The the Hebrew word is haga. He meditates. But the kings and the rulers of the earth, they're also meditating, but to them it's plotting, this horizontal chatter. But the Lord hears it, and this is where we see the response. So Psalm 1 is sort of the cry of, of the earthly kings. Let's burst the bonds apart between God and his anointed king, and let's cast off all of our connections to them. And... God responds in the second stanza. So this is God speaking. And we hear whenever you hear God speak in scripture it's it's really cool. So it says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's response is that he laughs. He he hears his plotting and he laughs. Again, it's difficult for us to get that, I think, um, in thinking about just the picture that I, I set with the kittens. What if those kitten brothers got together and they said you know what? We're taking over this family room. This is going to be our house. We're going to go start working. We're going to start buying the food. We're going to get the food that we want. We're going to take over this house, this family room. And I would laugh. I mean, I would literally like, ha ha. (laughs) The irony is that I can't understand them. So I don't know what they're growling at each other, but I don't know what they're trying to do. But they do have a sense that somehow we place them in our family room. Somehow they think this is theirs. They have no regard for our furniture. They have no regard for scratching our, my leather chair. Um, but they, they, this is their realm. But I can't understand everything they're saying. But interestingly, God can understand all of our plotting. Everything that we think is horizontal, he actually hears really as prayers. So you, you want to talk about, last week we said meditation is... We, we know how to meditate on just about anything. We know how to pour over anything. In the same way, we say we don't know what prayer is. Prayer is expressing your heart. And scripture says that the Lord hears our prayers. He's inclined his ear to our, in this case, plotting. And, and he responds. He laughs and he says, okay, you just wait. My king is coming. So his response is his king. And that's where um, we get to see something really beautiful in this psalm. The Lord is Yahweh. That's the name, when you see the Lord in the Bible, and the, in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the specific name of God that He revealed to the Hebrew people. So the, the nations are plotting against Yahweh and His anointed. The anointed is the king. But the Hebrew word is Messiah. So the people are plotting against Yahweh and his Messiah. And the word Messiah shows up all throughout this psalm. And then something beautiful happens in the New Testament scriptures. This psalm is quoted all throughout the New Testament. It's in uh, the Gospels. It's in the book of Acts. It's in the book of Hebrews. And it it takes this psalm and it brings Jesus into this psalm. Sometimes we have to be careful when we read Jesus into the Old Testament in a, in a non-cautious way. We can maybe misread the Old Testament if we try to point to Jesus at every, every little word. But in this case, um, the New Testament takes that question away from us. It points to this Messiah that's in Psalm 2 is Jesus. In fact, um, Peter, very early on, right after Pentecost, he quotes Psalm 2 1. He says, You have been raging against the Lord's anointed. And he said, This is good news. This Jesus, whom you crucified, is the Messiah. You just killed the Messiah. And then later on, when Paul was preaching in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, again, he's talking about the good news through Jesus Christ that comes from God. And he quotes Psalm 2 specifically. And he quotes this next stanza. So let's read it. This is stanza 3. Stanza 3, we have, now the Lord's anointed is speaking. So the king is speaking in stanza 3, beginning in verse 7. So he says, I will tell of the decree. So now the king is speaking. And the king is speaking about what he heard from Yahweh. Okay? So the Messiah is speaking in stanza three about what he heard from Yahweh. Listen to what he says. I will tell the decree. Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now we have um, Jesus in the center of this psalm. And if we have Christ in mind, the Messiah in mind, the shape of this psalm takes this form. Stanza one, the world is rejecting God and his ways, and it's striving for independence from God. The response of God is his anointed king, the Messiah, Jesus and then the psalm ends with this warning in the fourth stanza. And listen to the warning at the end, it begins in verse ten. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him so the fourth stanza is really this the narrator is speaking and this warning is coming to the earth it's this warning that we'll see but in this warning, I think we have to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, who the anointed king is, and the authority that he has in the world. And again, this is where you almost have to use your imagination to see how Jesus is at work. But he's, he's at work in some really beautiful ways. Um, the first thing that we see is that when Jesus came... Says that he arrived full of grace and truth in John chapter 1. And we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. And then at Jesus' baptism, you may remember this. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And as he came out, um, he heard the Father speaking over him This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately Jesus was taken into the wilderness and the tempter came and started to tempt him about his identity. You know what the first temptation was? The tempter said, if you are really the son of God, then make these stones become bread. The enemy is attacking the Messiah's identity. Are you really the Son of God? It's just like in the garden. Did God really say? Questioning what God has spoken. And then, um, right after that, there was the third temptation. It says the tempter uh, took Jesus up to a high mountain. The word Zion was a mountain in Jerusalem, and it became synonymous with um, the mountain of God, the holy hill of God. And the tempter took Jesus up to a, a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. It must have been beautiful. And the tempter said, bow down to me and worship, and I will give you all these kingdoms. And at that time, the enemy has some earthly realm The tempter, the devil, Satan, he has an earthly realm where he is given some short term um, power. So, this was a real temptation for Jesus. Um, We're told that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he, he didn't fall. He was without failure. And Jesus, I think, probably was going back to this psalm in his head because the the power of Jesus' kingdom comes through his identity with the Father. And and it starts to take this tree-like picture. In fact, again, in Matthew, Jesus was speaking to um, the people. And they said, Well, what is the kingdom of God like? he said, oh, okay, this is what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's the smallest of the garden seeds. And yet it grows into this large, the largest of tree plants um, from this small seed. And in its branches, there's protection for the birds of the air. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's as if Jesus is connecting Psalm 1 1 and 2 for us. He says, well, the kingdom of God is actually similar to Psalm 1. It's like a tree. And it's coming from something very small, and it's growing into this healthy, large tree of protection. And we see this in the warning. The invitation is there. It says, look... The call for these kings and rulers is for wisdom. Be wise. It's also a warning. A warning is a an invitation. It's, it's grace. Have you ever been warned and it hurts? Well, the warning is actually grace. It's not the bad thing. The bad thing is what's coming if you don't heed that warning. And so this... This psalm ends with a warning, which is an invitation. And it says, Every king, every ruler, serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. There's this call to worship. Kiss the sun is to bow down before him. Philippians 2 says, What? Every knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is king. And then at the very end of this psalm, we see this, um, again, this warning. Be careful, because the wrath of God, which is coming to remove impurity from the world, is, is something that you need protection from. So, what are you to do? What's the last sentence of this psalm? Blessed are all who run into the refuge of this king. So, The call to these kings and rulers, they're plotting against the Lord and his anointed to to break every, every, uh, every little connection that they have with this God. But the call at the end is to run into this king. He's the only king to run into. So as we close, I want to just hold up a couple of ways to think about this psalm from a practical standpoint is I really believe um, Psalm 1 and 2, as much as they introduce the psalm book and they teach us how to pray, they also, like I said earlier, they create this framework, these, um, the bookends of life. What are the two bookends that you live your life within? If you live your life within the bookend of Psalm 1, which is a, a constant meditation upon the ways of God, and Psalm 2 which is a recognition that there really is only one king and one kingdom in all of time and history. That's kind of, those are the boundaries of our faith. And we live within the books, the chapters, the historical timeline of those bookends. And when we're in the midst of it, we're in a good story, you know? And we, it just doesn't make sense. A lot of the world doesn't make sense. But Jesus' kingdom is much more subtle than I think we wish it were. I mean, don't you just wish Jesus would be, come on, come on down, Jesus. Like, show up and rule this earth. And that's a hope that we have. But his rulership now is a little bit different. The word sovereign means, doesn't mean that God is in control. Like when I say in control, I mean we're not a bunch of robots that he's telling us, okay, walk down this aisle. Okay, now turn right. Okay, now walk out that front door. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about those movements, the pathway of our life. It's that that, his main goal is our character and our transformation. And the way he rules in this world is much different than the way most kings rule. And that's why when we step back, we say, God, it doesn't seem like you're in charge. But his way of being in charge is is a graceful way of allowing us to come to him in time. So as we apply this psalm, I think there's two kind of spheres that you could live in. The first sphere is the kingdom within. We... um, most of us, probably, maybe not, maybe all of us did not grow up in a monarchy. Maybe someone did, I don't know. <laughs> um, a monarchy is when there is a king with supreme rule and authority in that land, that realm. We do not live in a monarchy in this country. Um, so we, we actually don't know what it's like to have a king in this, in this land. Um, So when we say, Jesus is my king, we say that as Christians, but what does it mean? We struggle with that phrase, I think, because we don't understand king and kingdom like we should. When we say, Jesus is my king, I think an internal way of thinking about that is, have you dethroned the inner kingdom of yourself? The king, I think the king that we all enjoy is our own king within. We think we have full domain and control of our inner realm, and we think it's ours, and no one else can touch it. Except that Jesus Christ comes into that kingdom. Our hope of glory is the mystery of Christ in us. So to surrender um, your own inner kingdom to Jesus, I think is a a daily way of applying this psalm. And then I think the second one is the kingdom of the world. What do we do when it seems like the world's falling apart? Uh, There's a quote here I found by Michael Wilcock. It's uh, from a book called The Message of the Psalms. But he says, There's scarcely a commercial or intellectual or cultural interest anywhere on earth that would not resent Jesus' claims on it. So I'll, I'll read that again. It's kind of a clunky quote, but it's good. There is scarcely a commercial or intellectual or cultural interest Anywhere on earth which would not resent Jesus' claims on it. So, in other words, what if Jesus walked into this museum and said, Oh, yeah, by the way, this is all mine? The people that operate this museum may not think that way. You can take a school, you can take a school that is doing good things, and Jesus would walk into that school and say, You know what, this is all mine. Every good thing that you're doing here belongs to me. We go into a university, a secular university like I went to. What if Jesus walked into the president of that university and said, oh, by the way, everything here is mine. So today we still see this rejection of a willingness to allow God to own all that's his. So as we um, close, there's three questions I have at the bottom. The bottom one has a line through it. so, <laughs> And it kind of goes from this internal kingdom to this external. Um, do you trust Jesus as a good king? What, and that's the internal question. And then the, the next question kind of interacts with the internal to the external. What fear or worry... Do you need to surrender or give to Jesus? And then lastly, um, I think this takes work. How might you help others see the kingdom of God at work when uh, most days it's quite invisible? So I want to just invite you just to bow your head, and we'll just end with just a brief time of prayer here. One of the things about this psalm is that it really calls us to worship this anointed king. And we know from Scripture that it's Jesus, the Messiah. And so I want to just ask you in your own life, um, are you surrendering all that you need to surrender to Jesus as your King and your Lord? And are you um, having the daily practices to learn to live into that kingdom when it's um, not something that's fully seen yet on this earth? Um, There will be coming a day when um, the new Jerusalem will be present in a fuller way, and every, every knee will eventually bow to Jesus. That's the promise of scripture. But in the here and now, we live in the tension of um, the in-between of God's kingdom still being a kingdom of grace, but a kingdom that um, is unlike the kingdoms of this world. So where are you that, in that this morning? And I just hope and pray that you would remember Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the person, and Psalm 2 ends, blessed is the world for anyone who takes refuge in this King Jesus. So Lord, what do you want us to remember um, from today, from this morning? Lord, what are you saying to us? And what do you want us to do about it? And we just give you all the glory this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.